Welcome to Gone Fishing, a show diving into the cybersecurity threats that surround our highly connected lives. Every human is different. Every person has unique vulnerabilities that expose them to potentially successful social engineering. On this show, we'll discuss human vulnerability and how it relates to unique individuals. I'm Connor Swam, CEO of FinSecurity, and welcome to Gone Fishing. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Gone Fishing. I am joined once again by Martin White, the CTO and founder of Tech ID Manager. Martin, how are you doing? I'm doing excellent. How about you today, Connor? If I were any better, I'd be a twin. I'm having a blast. Although the weather outside right over here to my right is overcast and rainy and cold. So the worst of every world that could exist. Uh, I have a bunch of rain on my window too, but at least it's hitting a lake. So like that makes the rain not quite as bad. So folks, if you haven't listened to the previous episodes we've done with Martin on um, uh, they call authentication and admin sharing and uh, sharing admin accounts and stuff like that, I'd highly recommend you go do that. We actually just did an episode with, with uh, Martin here about AI and safety and security and what may or may not happen. Today, we're talking about the Turing test. And you posed a question that I'm going to hope you answer first because I don't know how to answer it. Uh, <laughs> is the Turing test generation specific? Can you describe what the Turing test is for those who may not know? Yeah. Uh, Alan Turing was the guy in the 40s and 50s who made the, broke the Enigma code, which was the encryption that the Nazis were using to send information around in World War II. He single-handedly probably helped win World War, the war against the Nazis because he broke the information, determined what information go in and out. Very smart individual, a very sad ending to his life. If you are unfamiliar with that, I highly suggest you go look up Alan Turing and his life, how he ended his life and why. But the Turing test is what we're going to talk about. The Turing test was a mental exercise that he came up with in the early days of computers where he said, computers are going to get smarter. They're going to get better. At some point in the future, computers will be so smart, we might not be able to tell the difference between a computer and a person. So we need a way, a mental exercise to know what that is. So the Turing test is you put a person in a room and you put a computer in a room. And then outside of those rooms, only with key, uh, some small way to communicate is a judge of panel, a panel of judges. The judges ask questions in both rooms and the answers come back to the judges. And the judges have to determine which room is a computer and which room is a person. If the AI is determined to be the human, they pass the Turing test. If the person is considered to be the human by the judge, panel of judges, and the person passes the test and the AI fails the test. It's a real straightforward way to say AI is progressing, not progressing. AI is the level where it imitates a person. Uh, that is what the Turing test is. And the question that I posed was, is it generationally, generationally specific? Like a computer in the 60s, anybody, any computer would fail the Turing test. It wasn't a processing power. It wasn't enough information. They could barely respond. It could easily pass. A computer, an AI from today, but in the 60s, talking to a person from the 60s, would totally pass the Turing test every single time without fail. But today, people know what technology is available, and the Turing test is still not easily passed by AI. So in, in that way, I think it is generationally specific, but it's been a short generation. And will the next generation, as we talked about last time, as AI gets more weaponized, will people be able to recognize what is AI and what's not from an image perspective, from a video perspective, from both a chat interaction perspective? Will people become smart enough to not be tricked by it? To know, yeah, that's computer generated. That's not reality. Or will the Turing test be failed, complete, or be passed every time by AI? We won't be able to tell what's real, what's not real. You know, that's like that's what the Turing test is. That's some history around it. It makes sense. Have you seen it? Have you heard of it before? 
I have, and I loved the imitation game with Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was a wonderful movie. Um, yep. Yeah, it was a. Uh, for those of you like what the Enigma Code is basically just a random uh, cryptographic scheme to take in information, and everyone who didn't have the ability to decode it had no idea what was going on. Now Turing was like, uh, well, we'll just build a computer that will sort through all of the possible ways that this could be uh, uh, put through cryptography. And then they got to an answer. It's like, oh, German came out the other side of this now. Looks like we have the we've cracked the code. We found that we found it. Uh, and that's yep. basically how it happened. Um, what are some limitations of the Turing test? The limitations are it's um, by the test definition, it's just interactive on voice or written word. I think that the original uh, incantations were all written. So you just typed in a terminal, terminal came back because that's what was available. I think that the Turing test will iterate. There are other tests that will come that have come along, like the Marcus test, the reverse Turing test, or the Lace La- the Lovelace test, which are different but are also meant to gauge the kind of, same kind of thing. The Lovelace test is one where AI watches a video and then answers questions about it. Is that Lovelace or is that Marcus? One of the two. One of those. They watch a video and then panel of judges asks the participant, the AI and the person about the video and they have to interpret. And it's generally considered like the AI couldn't interpret videos very well, you know? So the, uh, uh, AI can pass the SAT with a greater likelihood and a higher score than even the best students at this point. Really? Because there were people that when I was in the SAT, admittedly many, many years ago, there's a different scoring mechanism and everything. (laughs) Yeah. There were people who got perfect scores back then. Yeah. I came real close, but I didn't get a perfect score. I didn't either. I wouldn't sweat it. Yeah. I was like a sophomore. I was like, what do you mean I have to wake up early on a Saturday and go do this? I ain't doing that. I want to go ride my mountain bike. I want to rollerblade. <laughs> I want to sleep in and play video games. It's <laughs> more like it. <laughs> so in a world of generative generative AI where images can be faked and voices can be faked and text can be faked or... When I say faked here, I, I mean, just like not humans have the capability of making up things. We're storytellers, right? So now AI has somewhat of this capability as well. Is the Turing test completely dead in a world where AI could like pretty much emulate all that? I think not. I think that the Turing test is a really good indicator of what, where AI is. And I think that a lot of the images, like you'll see images, I see images all the time, on Instagram and other art sources, deviant art, whatnot. And you can tell which ones are AI and which ones are person generated. It's usually because the AI ones have, uh, what are they called? Like style to it or uh, artifacts or they look not right. I can't put my finger on it. That's kind of what the Turing test is about. There's no algorithmic way to say this is fake, this is real, but there are clues. And I know that I'm not perfect and I'm not being like, but I think that people can tell when they really focus and if you've looked at a lot of artwork through your life, you can tell what people have done. You can see brushstrokes, things like that, that don't exist in AI because it's all computer. Yeah. One day, computers will be tied to robots and they'll use actual brushes and it will become very difficult to tell because you'll have brushstrokes and things like that. It'll be pictures of actual art. You know, I find it interesting that one of the ways, uh, one of the common ways that worse, the worst set of uh, large language models when they generate images, one of the ways to detect those images is by looking at the fingers. and that. One of the easiest ways to identify if you're in a dream or reality is to look at your own fingers and to see if it matches what reality should be, which is, yep, I got five fingers here. One's a thumb and the other four right here on my hand. 
Uh, for those of you who don't know, it's like if you are in a dream where you're asleep and you're dreaming, one of the quickest ways to identify that you're actually in a dream is to look at your hands because your brain, something that's happening while your brain is dreaming, it is unable to properly generate like in your dream the hand uh, that is there. Uh, I don't know why I, I'm not a brain scientist or anything like that, but I do know that anytime I'm in a dream and I've been able to hold on, uh, it's called like a, a, what is that called? It's like a consciousness test. There's several others that you could do uh, as well. Uh, you just draw attention to something and you focus on it. Like, all right, Wernicke's area, there's a spot in your brain that's uh, responsible for text comprehension. It's called Wernicke's area. If you're asleep, you can't read. You can think you're reading. But then when you look at the words individually, word by word by word, it's all gobbledygook. It it looks like nothing, uh, essentially. So those are really two common ways. It's interesting that like you detect AI by kind of looking at the fingers right now, but you also figure out if you're dreaming by looking at your fingers. It's weird. You can also detect AI by looking at the words in the backgrounds of the pictures. Lots of times there won't be words, but just be symbols that look like words or symbols that look like letters. Exactly. Really interesting the parallel there, the parallel that just seems to be evolving between AI and the brain. Yeah. yeah. Now you're thinking about it. You're like, I need to go think about that some more. That I it is it. interesting that the the two primary ways you identify fake from reality in your own life, like in your own dreams, also kind of are the hardest things for AI to get right, which is text that makes sense in the scope of an image and your hands. Interesting. Yeah. Or it may be like we've fallen prey to the, uh, you know, your, your language model is only as good as the data you've put into it. And it'll have all the biases that the data has as well. Yep. Maybe that's just another case is maybe these LLMs have that bias because <laughs> for some reason, the data that we shove into these things provides that bias because we have it as humans and we created the data. Yeah. That bias piece for computer models and computer programming based on example data sets uh, has been evident for a very long time. Yeah, back in the ninety late uh, late eighties and early nineties, when banks started to use computers to process loan applications, they gave it all the loan applications they had in the past, approved, non approved, and then like use that to build the model the way they're going to approve and not approve loan applications in the current. And they found an abnormal disparity for Black families getting refused loans that should have gotten loans based on just pure numbers, and they traced it back to the data they fed into the model was also it was based on biased and racist loan officers not giving them loans because they saw them, but there was something in the data that the models could pick up on that they just they translated into their output. Yeah. So like there's like we're talking about the weaponization of weaponization of AI and how it inadvertently become bad on the situation where it did and caused problems. It's true. Uh your model's only as good as the data you feed it. Yeah. And a lot of people make the mistake of saying the model was generated with those uh, the model was generated to be biased and i i know very little about ai actually but the i know enough of it to know it's like well actually the model is just the result of whatever you data you fed in and said go be this thing so it it's not that they told it to be this way it's that the data told it to be this way so how do you generate data that's not biased or how do you but then again if you if you work from the assumption that the set of data is biased. And as a result, you start cherry picking things out or putting things in. What have you just done? Well, you've arguably increased the bias of the data set. So it's like, all right, well, what are we trying to get to? We're trying to get, it's clearly not unbiased. It's like, do you play Baldur's Gate 3 by chance? All right. Have you ever played Dungeons and Dragons? Yeah. All right. You can get 
if it were true randomness and you're rolling a dice, you can get incredible streaks of unluckiness where you just critical miss everything. One, one, mm-hmm. one, one, one. Baldur's Gate 3 has a mechanic where you can't critical miss and you can't roll lower in a complete random scenario. It carves out that bottom set because the experience you have as a player of the game is like, wow, this isn't random. I'm just getting screwed. <laughs> and, and so what the game developers actually did is they instituted this mechanic where this is less random, but you feel like it's more random, which is just like people's perception of randomness is just completely not based in reality. Oh, yeah. The Along that exact same line, random passwords, I mean, our, our product does password generation and such random passwords. A fully random password that's even 32 characters long will a large portion of the, not a large, not a majority, but like five, 10% of the time, it will fail the password criteria for most servers because a full lowercase lettered random password is completely valid, but it doesn't pass the requirements for password complexity for lots of servers. So that same kind of thing, when you're generating random passwords or making roles for plays and games, you bias the generation toward an outcome and hope that your bias doesn't reduce the attack window and attack feature set yeah. too much. You know what a really weird example of that password generation is? Yeah. Let's uh, a really common way that um, a lot of people tell you to make passwords is choose a couple of words, you know, put a special character in between them. So maybe you do four words like I'll just look around cup, quarter, uh, bottle, and you put one, two and three between them. It's like, that's a very secure password. If you misspell bottle purposely, it is a more secure password. Uh, and it's just this weird thing where if you have misspelled English words in your password, I'm only talking about, you know, English language here. But if you have misspelled words in your password that you've used to come up, that's your cryptographic scheme now. It is a less guessable password than if you used English words because there's less information. There's less information that anything or anyone could use to try and guess your password now because it's like, well, if I know that they're using English words that are spelled correctly, I know the scope of which I need to look through things that could be combined. Then if you introduce misspelled words, it's like, okay, wait a second. There's way more randomness here now. So, yeah. And the... The misspelled words are sometimes and sometimes not in the rainbow tables you look stuff up by when you find a hash or you get some sort of password file that's all encrypted. The uh, rainbows are different because the rainbow tables don't always include those things. Yeah. Makes them also harder to guess. For those of you who don't know what a rainbow table is, think of this. It is an enormous dictionary of commonly used passwords that uh, it's, it, is much, it is much easier to sort through a million common passwords and guess those that it is to sort through the trillions of combinations or even larger that could exist if it was true random. So you are truly victims of opportunity uh, in most cases when your password, it's like you just happen to use a password that was easier to guess than if they looked through the total scope of random possibilities because of the way they knew you were going to generate it. Or you reused one at some site that got hacked into. Yep. Put that and they applied that same password other places. Yeah. The, I don't know that AI would do any better. Uh, making up passwords. I've not tried that. That's something that uh, I want to try later is like ask AI to generate me some random passwords and see how random they are. Strong passwords. See if they're random or they're not. Because you could totally put that in a loop. Anyway, so like an interesting mental exercise. Then we're talking about investors and what they want to hear. Then I could say there's AI password generation and AI authentication, AI-based authentication. And investors would be much more likely to give money because they're giving money to anything that says AI nowadays. There is uh, a lot to, a lot of money to be gained and made. in. it's like a dot-com boom. 
everything's going to exist. And then a few winners will, that have actual application and value will win out. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, so like back to the AI and the general and the Turing test there. And I remember the 30 years ago when futurists would say in 2020, computers will take over and do all the work and people will be free to do art and make music. And what's actually happened is people are doing lots of hard work and the computers are making the art and the music. And the, I ran into a guy a while ago and he was very adamant that he could tell the difference between AI generated music and live played music by a human because the human music included soul and feeling that the AI music never included. And he couldn't put his finger on it, but he said it all every time he's tried it, like listen, AI music or live music. Live music was just obviously different and better. And he loved it. Feels like reading tea leaves to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Similar to the um, counterfeit agents that the U.S. government trains. I think it's six weeks or nine weeks. They train the counterfeit agents. They give them only real money, real dollars. That's the only thing they touch for eight, six weeks to nine weeks. They don't touch anything except real dollars. They get an innate sense for what a real dollar is. So the first time they touch a fake dollar in the world, they've never been told what's fake. They've only been told what's real. They instantly know it's fake. It feels wrong. It looks wrong. They have this innate sense. And they only got that by looking at real money. And I think older individuals, I'm going to put my class, myself in that category of older <laughs> individuals who have had a lifetime of non-AI generated stuff. Our mental model of the world is based on actual life, real stuff. Younger generation who has seen AI integrated in their daily life from five years old on, books they see, content they watch on YouTube, interaction on the internet, they do not have a distinct mental model for what is real and what is AI. It is all integrated together. I think that the younger generation is going to have a significantly harder time determining what's AI and what's not. And I think that relating that all the way back to the beginning, the Turing test generational specific is generationally specific because I think, I hate to sound like a boomer because I'm not a boomer, next, <laughs> But Gen X and boomers are going to be the ones that will tell what's fake and what's AI just inherently. We'll look at it and we'll know. Gen Z millennials won't know because their inherent mental model won't have the fine detailed distinction between what's generated and what's not. That is true. It's uh, uh, interesting. What do we do about that? Yeah. Get off my lawn. That's what we do about it. I'll let smarter people decide that. Um, yeah. It's like you decide. You decide what we should do about that. Awesome. For folks who wanted to connect with you or connect with Tech ID Manager, how would you suggest they do that? Then go to techidmanager.com. There's lots of contact info there. And I am Martin at techidmanager.com. Awesome. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Martin, thanks for being here. It was a wonderful conversation. And uh, I'm sure everyone listening or watching, we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about creating high quality security awareness training campaigns that engage employees and change their habits, then check out FinSecurity at phinsec.io or click the link in our show notes. Thanks for fishing with me. See you next time. <laughs>